You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for downloading episode number 105 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. On March 8, 1862, the last day of the Battle of Pea Ridge in northwest Arkansas, a new era in naval warfare began far to the east at Hampton Roads, Virginia. When the Confederates had captured the Gosport Navy Yard back in the spring of 1861, One of the prizes they acquired was the damaged but salvageable hull of the steam frigate USS Merrimack. The Federals had imperfectly scuttled the frigate, and so although the Merrimack burnt down to the waterline, the rebels were still able to salvage her hull and engines and rebuild her as a different sort of warship, an ironclad. Christened the CSS Virginia, she was now an armored ram. The Virginia's sides were constructed of wooden panels two feet thick, covered with two layers of two-inch-thick iron plates, and there was a 1,500-pound iron ram protruding about three feet from her prow. She measured 275 feet in length, was just a tad over 51 feet in the beam, and had a crew of 320. Her armament consisted of two 7-inch brook rifles, six 9-inch Dahlgren smoothbores, and two 6.4-inch brook rifles. The CSS Virginia was commissioned on February 17, 1862, and on Saturday, March 8, she steamed out of the Navy Yard and down the Elizabeth River, ostensibly for trials and underway training for the crew, but the Virginia's captain, Franklin Buchanan, instead took her right out into Hampton Roads and attacked the blockading Union fleet that was on station there. In the battle that day in Hampton Roads, the Virginia destroyed both the sloop Cumberland and the frigate Congress, and in the chaos, two more Federal warships ran aground. While the Virginia's fire and very presence had wreaked havoc among the blockading Union ships, their return fire had had little effect on the rebel ironclad. At 5 p.m., with the tide receding, the Virginia broke off the action and retired, leaving devastation in her wake. The ironclad only withdrew a short distance, though, with the expectation that she would renew the battle the next day and wreck more of the Federal warships. But during the night, some five hours after the withdrawal of the Virginia, another Federal warship steamed into Hampton Roads and anchored alongside the frigate Minnesota, which had run aground and remained stranded and vulnerable. The new arrival, described as a cheese box on a raft, was the USS Monitor, and she was the Union Navy's answer to the rebel ironclad. And so, when the Virginia came out to renew the battle the following morning, instead of fighting against unprotected wooden ships again, she would be fighting another ironclad, 
On March 9, 1862, the confined waters of Hampton Roads, Virginia, would be the scene of the world's first battle between two ironclad warships. In February 1861, when Confederate President Jefferson Davis appointed Stephen Mallory Secretary of the Navy, Mallory faced a daunting task. That was because the Confederacy began its bid for independence with no Navy at all. And so unlike his northern counterpart, Gideon Wells, who inherited a functioning Navy and naval bureaucracy, Mallory had to start from scratch. In his book, The Civil War at Sea, Craig Simons writes, quote, with his round, avuncular face framed by a leprechaun-like fringe of beard, Mallory was less than heroic-looking, but he possessed both the temperament and the expertise needed to preside over the thankless job of conjuring a Confederate Navy. End quote. Stephen Russell Mallory was born on Trinidad Island in the West Indies, probably in 1813, but in 1820 his family moved to Key West, Florida. Two years later, his father died of tuberculosis. When Mallory was 14, his mother sent him to attend a Moravian school for boys up in Pennsylvania, and his three years there were the sum total of his formal education. He then returned to Florida and helped his mother run a boarding house. In 1833, Mallory was appointed customs inspector at Key West. At about the same time, he started to study law with a local judge. Eventually admitted to the bar, Mallory specialized in maritime cases. That was surely challenging in the rough-and-tumble community of Key West, where the principal business was going out and salvaging the many ships that were wrecked trying to round the Keys. And yet, Mallory prospered in his law practice, developing a reputation for a judicious temperament while adjudicating the conflicting claims of wreckers and shipowners. During the Second Seminole War, Mallory served as a volunteer aboard a gunboat, and then in 1845, President James K. Polk appointed him collector of the customs at Key West. In 1851, the Florida legislature elected Mallory to the U.S. Senate. After arriving in Washington, Mallory served on the Naval Affairs Committee, and after his re-election to the Senate in 1857, he chaired the committee. He used his chairmanship of the committee to push for naval expansion and technical innovations, and so he unwittingly helped enlarge and modernize the very U.S. Navy that he would find himself fighting against after the start of the Civil War. His experience with the Senate's Naval Affairs Committee gave Mallory a familiarity not only with naval administration, but also with most of the personalities he would have to deal with during the Civil War. Mallory was a moderate Democrat, and during the run-up to war, he was a calm voice amidst the storm of debate, but when Florida seceded, he went with his state. And then, despite some opposition from die-hard fire-eaters who opposed Mallory because of his earlier pleas for restraint, in February 1861, Jefferson Davis appointed him Secretary of the Navy. Stephen Mallory would be one of only two of Jefferson Davis's cabinet members to hold his office throughout the entire war. From the start, Mallory faced daunting challenges. At the outset of hostilities, the only ships to which the fledgling Confederate government could lay claim were those that were seized by local authorities immediately after secession. Four revenue cutters, an ancient side-wheel steamer, and a few small tenders and tugs, ten ships altogether. 
Confederate authorities went so far as to urge southern-born U.S. Navy officers, quote, to bring with you every ship and man you can, end quote, when they returned to their native states. But those officers who did resign to serve the Confederacy refused to stoop to such treachery. Before making their way south, they first turned their commands over to federal authorities. Immediately after the start of the war, the Confederacy actually had few assignments for those southern-born naval officers who did resign from the U.S. Navy to serve their native states. And it's interesting, just as an aside, that while two-thirds of southern-born army officers went south to serve the Confederacy, less than half of southern-born naval officers did so. Well, at any rate, even those naval officers who did resign and go south, most of them had a difficult time finding meaningful employment. In March 1861, before Fort Sumter, Confederate law established a naval officer corps consisting of four captains, four commanders, and 30 30 lieutenants. But by then, there were already 12 captains, 24 commanders, and 30 lieutenants who had resigned their U.S. Navy commissions and went south. By July, that number would increase to 15 captains, 33 commanders, and 78 lieutenants, looking for jobs in a Confederate Navy that had plenty of officers, but hardly any ships. The U.S. Navy, shortly after the start of the war, by readying the ships and dockyards, bringing back to home waters those that were overseas, and adding almost two dozen hastily constructed 90-day gunboats, well, shortly after the start of the war, the U.S. Navy had a total of more than 100 warships in service, most of them steamers. And by the end of the year, that is by December 1861, the Union Navy could boast a total of 264 warships in service. The Confederacy couldn't match that kind of effort. Stephen Mallory recognized from the outset that the South lacked both the shipyards and the manufacturing capability to match the Union naval mobilization and construction effort, but Mallory would do all he could with the meager resources available to him. Since the South's disadvantages slash weaknesses wouldn't allow it to compete with the Union Navy on a ship-to-ship basis, Mallory had to find another way to counter the Federal's numerical superiority. Mallory's solution was to turn to a technology strategy and an overseas purchasing and shipbuilding program. Mallory was a big believer in commerce rating, which he hoped would strike a blow at the North's economy and also cause the Federals to divert warships away from the blockade of southern ports. To put together a fleet of commerce raiders, he dispatched Confederate naval agents to Europe to purchase cruisers and also to contract for the construction of others. At the start of the war, the Confederacy also turned to privateers to conduct commerce raiding. Privateers were privately owned ships that were licensed to attack enemy vessels. To become a privateer, a person first had to obtain a certificate from the government. That certificate was called a letter of mark, and it was literally a license to steal. But while southern privateers enjoyed some early success after the start of the Civil War, it soon played itself out as the privateers found it increasingly difficult to get their prizes to a port where they could be condemned and sold. The European powers refused to allow prizes to be sent into their ports for condemnation, and then the tightening Union blockade of southern ports made it more and more risky to try to send prizes back to the Confederacy. And so once the profits from privateering began to dry up, the owners of the vessels quickly gave it up. 
That wasn't the end of the Confederacy's maritime strategy, of course. It just meant that the war against Union shipping would have to be conducted by Confederate warships rather than by independent entrepreneurs. To that end, to establish a fleet of commerce raiders, Stephen Mallory, as I mentioned just a minute ago, dispatched Confederate naval agents to Europe to purchase cruisers and also to contract for the construction of others. And those Confederate naval agents enjoyed no small measure of success in their endeavors. Besides seeking to use overseas sources to put together a fleet of commerce raiders, we said that Mallory also turned to a technology strategy for the Confederate Navy. Mallory had embraced innovation back when he was chairman of the Senate's Naval Affairs Committee, and now, as the Confederate Secretary of the Navy, he wanted to bring the widespread use of innovative naval technologies as a counterweight to the Union's numerical superiority. To that end, Mallory would sanction experimentation with underwater mines, or what they called torpedoes back in the olden days, and he would also recognize the potential of submarine warfare. But Mallory's great goal, with regard to using technological innovation to shape the naval war, was the construction of ironclad vessels that he hoped would not only break the Union blockade, but would perhaps also steam north to attack the enemy's ports. Before the war was even a month old, Mallory had already declared that, quote, I regard the possession of an iron-armored warship as a matter of the first necessity. Such a vessel at this time could traverse the entire coast of the United States, prevent all blockades, and encounter with a fair prospect of success their entire navy. If to cope with them upon the sea we follow their example and build wooden ships, we shall have to construct several at one time, for one or two ships would fall prey to her comparatively numerous steam frigates. But inequality of numbers may be compensated by invulnerability, and thus not only does economy but naval success dictate the wisdom of fighting with iron against wood. End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history.
and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Stephen Mallory's idea of using ironclad warships against wooden-hulled ships was not unique. In his book, Duel Between the First Ironclads, William C. Davis points out that in 1861, there was actually nothing revolutionary about the idea of an ironclad warship. In 1592, a Korean admiral repelled a Japanese naval attack using an iron-covered tortoise ship, so-called because its armored hull was shaped like a turtle. In the 1780s, the Spanish built floating gun batteries whose guns were protected by slanting bulwarks covered with iron. And then, in the 1840s and 50s, French and British iron-hulled warships were built. In fact, by 1861, the British Navy had 10 ships whose frames and hulls were of iron built or under construction, some of which were clad in 6.5 inches of iron plating. With all of that going on, the United States had been remarkably indifferent to the radical developments going on with regard to ironclad naval construction. The closest thing the U.S. had to an ironclad was the ungainly Stevens Battery, a 420-foot, 6,000-ton monster that carried seven guns. Begun in 1854, it still wasn't finished in 1861. While serving on the Senate's Naval Affairs Committee, Stephen Mallory had kept an eye on the early development of the Stevens Battery, and in the 1850s, he was one of the few Americans to follow the French and British advances in ironclad design with keen interest. And so it's no surprise that, as mentioned just a minute ago, before the Civil War was even a month old, Mallory, in his role as the new Confederate Secretary of the Navy, was writing a letter declaring, I regard the possession of an iron-armored warship as a matter of the first necessity. Mallory recognized that the South's underdeveloped industrial sector would find it all but impossible to produce an ironclad warship quickly, so he sent a representative to Europe in the hope that France might sell the Confederacy the new ironclad Gloire. But while many Frenchmen may have been sympathetic to the Southern cause, they had no intention of giving up the pride of their fleet to the Confederacy. Mallory's representative and other Confederate agents did manage to sign contracts in England and France for the construction of ironclad vessels, but the long lead time to complete such ships meant that even if the Confederacy could get them out of Europe, they might arrive too late to accomplish their purpose. In his book, War on the Waters, the Union and Confederate Navies, 1861-1865, James McPherson writes, quote, The Confederacy was thus forced to rely on its own resources to construct ironclads. To build them from scratch would take a long time, and the Union Navy was unlikely to wait. Lieutenant John M. Brooke, Naval Constructor John L. Porter, and Chief Engineer William P. Williamson came up with a solution. On June 23, 1861, they met with Mallory in Richmond and decided to build their ironclad on the hull of the USS Merrimack, burned to the waterline by the Federals when they had evacuated Norfolk in April. This is our only chance, said Brooke, to get a suitable vessel in a short time. End quote. 
As we mentioned before, the steam-powered frigate Merrimack had been imperfectly scuttled when the Union Navy abandoned the Gosport Navy Yard back in April 1861. And so although the ship had been partially burned and sunk in the Elizabeth River, the Confederates were able to salvage her lower hull and power plant. After Mallory met with Brooke, Porter, and Williamson and approved their plan to use the Merrimack as the basis to build a new vessel, the Confederate Congress appropriated $170,000 to fund the project. The work of transforming the Merrimack into the Virginia began by cutting away the charred remains of the upper hull down to the old berth deck, which was within three and a half feet of her unladen waterline. The 29-foot-long bow and the 66-foot-long fantail would be awash when the ship was completed and in fighting trim, but they were still covered with one-inch-thick iron plate. A casemate, or shell, of pine and oak, 24 inches thick and inclining at an angle of 36 degrees, was erected along the 170 feet of the midship section of the hull. Both ends of the structure were rounded so that pivot guns could be used as bow and stern chasers. The iron plating that covered this wooden shell was manufactured at the Tredegar Iron Works in Richmond, the only facility in the South that could roll the two layers of two-inch thick iron plate that would armor the casemate. The Tredegar Works had to alter their machinery to roll the thicker plate, which delayed production, and it wasn't until February 1862 that there was enough iron on hand to complete the armor shield. Tredegar's records show that they eventually delivered 725 tons of iron plates, most being 10 feet long, 8 inches wide, and 2 inches thick, pre-drilled to allow two layers of them to be bolted to the wooden framework of the Virginia's casemate. Thus armored, the ship was provided with a cast-iron, wedge-shaped ram weighing 1,500 pounds that would protrude about three feet from her prow. Although ramming as an offensive tactic had been pretty much abandoned toward the end of the medieval period with the rise of sailing ships mounting artillery, the advent of steam power now made ramming a viable tactic once again. Attaching an iron ram to the Virginia was Mallory's suggestion. He likened ramming to a, quote, bayonet charge of infantry. Accommodation for the ship's complement of 320 officers and men appears to have been primitive. The officers were provided with temporary cabins below decks toward the bow and above the coal bunker, with the partitions being taken down when the ship was cleared for action. The men probably slung hammocks or slept on the floor along the gun deck. According to the Virginia's executive officer, Lieutenant Catsby App Roger Jones, she was, quote, badly ventilated, very uncomfortable, and very unhealthy, end quote. The greatest weaknesses in the Virginia's design were her deep draft and her unreliable, underpowered engines. Fully laden, the ironclad would draw over 22 feet of water, and since the waters of the Elizabeth River and Hampton Roads were a maze of shallows and narrow channels, she was going to be difficult to maneuver in the constricted waters of the immediate area. And then the Virginia's engines were the same ones that had powered the Merrimack, but those engines were actually the reason the Federal warship had been in Gosport Navy Yard for major refitting and repairs. Since the Merrimack's commissioning in 1856, her engines had been a problem. They were continually breaking down and were finally condemned in 1860. And so it was those same unreliable engines that now powered the Virginia, and they would struggle mightily to propel the ungainly massive bulk of the ironclad to a top speed of perhaps just five or six knots. 
To command this costly and experimental warship that the Confederacy was investing so much in, Mallory chose Captain Franklin Buchanan. And Buchanan's story is pretty interesting. In The Civil War at Sea, Craig Simons writes that, quote, Buchanan was an old sea dog, a 45-year veteran of the Navy who had accepted a midshipman's warrant as a teenager during the War of 1812. A Marylander by birth, Buchanan had been outraged back in April of 1861 when an angry crowd in Baltimore had clashed with a Massachusetts regiment that was passing through town en route to Washington. Sure that Maryland was about to secede from the Union, Buchanan made his way to Gideon Wells' office and submitted his resignation. But Maryland did not secede, and Buchanan soon had second thoughts. Rather sheepishly, he attempted to withdraw his resignation, to which the judgmental Wells replied dismissively, By direction of the President, your name has been stricken from the rolls of the Navy. Buchanan saw himself as the victim in this scenario. He denied that he was a secessionist, but Wells would have none of it. He had no time for Buchanan and others like him who had been faithless to their country in time of peril. Eventually, Buchanan went south, though he waited until after the rebel victory at Bull Run to do so, and reported himself to Mallory as ready for duty in the Confederate Navy. End quote. And so, after the Virginia was ready, Mallory decided he wanted Franklin Buchanan to command her. Buchanan reported aboard the Virginia on March 4th, and four days later he took her out for her maiden voyage. Her guns had never been fired by her crew, workmen were still clamoring over her even as she slipped away from her berth, and her bulky engines were a major question mark. So the outing was supposed to just be a shakedown cruise, but Buchanan instead decided to seize the moment and attack the enemy at once. To that end, the big ironclad steamed slowly out of the mouth of the Elizabeth River at mid-morning on March 8th and headed straight for the Cumberland and the Congress, two wooden-hauled warships that were part of the Union Navy squadron blockading Hampton Roads. And, since that brings us just about back to the point in the story as we left it at the top of the show, we're going to cut away from the Virginia for a while, and next week we'll take a look at the Monitor, and her development and construction, and her dreadful voyage from New York down to Hampton Roads, where the two ironclads will battle one another on March 9th, 1862. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Confederate Navy, The Ships, Men, and Organization, 1861-1865, to edited by William N. Still, Jr. This book is lavishly illustrated, as they say, and consists of 11 essays by different authorities on topics ranging from the background of the Confederate Navy to types of ships to shipboard life to strategy and tactics and operations. So it draws together a lot of information and is well worth having on your bookshelf if you want to delve deeper into this subject. So that's The Confederate Navy, The Ships, Men, and Organization, 1861 to 1865, edited by William N. Still, Jr. And as always, you can find all of our book recommendations listed on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. 
And we have a few of y'all to thank who went to the website this past week and made a donation. So thank you to Jorn from Germany, Andrew from Pennsylvania, Brett from Oregon, and Jose Maria from Spain. Yeah, thanks guys. And then we also have some new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank for their support. Signing on this past week were Peter, John, and Tandy. And Mike, Thomas, and John. And Richard and Sue. So a big thank you to all of you. And then we also appreciate those of you who are still leaving us those wonderful five-star reviews on iTunes. Those help other people discover the podcast on iTunes. So those are great and help us out a lot. And just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the permission of Spiritwood Music. All right, and with that, we'll say thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next time, like I said, we'll take a look at the USS Monitor and get her down to Hampton Roads. So then we'll be set for the big battle. So we hope you'll join us again next week. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.